Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. With the dawn of the 70s and the downturn of Hammer Studios, change started to take place in the movie world. The most prominent of these changes being a new rule in the dreaded X rating. This new rule changed the cutoff age for X rated films to 18 instead of 16, which left studios with more freedom for nudity and adult themes for a wider audience. Thankfully for us, Hammer Honcho, Sir James Carreras, thought more nudity is exactly what Hammer Horror needed. It wasn't long before the producers approached Sir James with a lesbian interpretation of J. Sheridan La Fanu's classic novel Carmilla, and the vampire lovers was born. Mix in the worldly beauty of Polish actress Ingram Pitt and the wide-eyed innocence of Madeline Smith, and the movie was on its way to becoming a cult classic. Leave your inhibitions at the door as Scott, Derek, and myself dig into the first of Hammer's racier films and introduce you to the first prominent female vampire not named Bathory with our discussion of 1970s The Vampire Lovers. Hark, a film of tender love and the screams of vampire death. Now there's a powerful motion picture that rips at your emotions. The Vampire Lovers. It brings you beautiful love and vampire evil, and it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. You'll hear whispers of warm desire become shrieks of chilling death. You'll taste the deadly passion of the vampire lovers and become a slave of the damned. You'll discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The vampire lovers, it's in color, and it had to be rated R. Under 17 must be accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. Don't miss The Vampire Lovers. When you think classic vampire literature, you're probably going to think of Dracula, but 16 years before Dracula hit the stands, the short story Carmilla was published creating the character that would prove the inspiration behind this month's film, The Vampire Lovers. Uh, we decided to review this movie because this is one of Casey's favorites. This is Casey's birthday month. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and he decided to share his birthday favorite with us, or one of his birthday favorites. This is number two on your list, right, brother? Yes, it is. It's more so my va- my Valentine's Day horror go than my birthday pick but oh okay okay that makes sense vampire lover love you know valentine's say got it okay yeah i would love ingrid pitt to give me a, a valentine uh, who wouldn't <laughs> uh, this film man um you mentioned this in the intro about how things started to get a little racy for hammer in the 70s you know hammer no longer has the novelty of doing what they do when it comes to the gothic horror things are changing up they're no longer embrace studios a lot of change in the air for hammer and a couple of producers approach hammer with the idea of doing a film based on carmilla this isn't the first time that carmilla was adapted to film it's been adapted to film as early as 1932 uh, with the film vampire but according to 
Bruce Hellenbeck when he wrote for Little Shop of Horrors, it took Hammer to make the definitive version of this story for film. When this was made, Hammer is on a downturn as far as what they've been putting out. They've had two movies before that uh, that failed pretty badly in the in the States here and whatnot. I think they did okay, marginally okay in uh, the UK, but you know internationally it was bad. Those were the uh, Dennis Wheatley adaptations, The Devil Rides Out and The Lost Continent, which just didn't do very good for him. So they were looking for something to change things up. Yeah, much to Christopher Lee's dismay, he's a big fan of Dennis Wheatley and always wanted to do more Dennis Wheatley films. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It didn't do so well. And you know, again, it's it's a changing marketplace. You mentioned the rating change in British cinema. So the marketplace is changing up a little bit. What is Hammer going to do to not necessarily say relevant, but to say profitable? How are they going to stay in the marketplace? And I think this film really did it for him. This, oh, yeah. This kicks off a trilogy of vampire films. Uh, the third film in this cycle is fantastic which is the one that I'm most familiar with, Twins of Evil. Right. And it's the only one of the three that I had seen, and I agree, that one is fantastic. Oh, it's it's amazing with Peter Cushing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I giggle, and can we just kind of sidebar real quick, over on Facebook somebody mentioned that uh, we need to change the name of our podcast to the Peter Cushing podcast. <laughs> uh, because we managed to talk about Peter Cushing in every episode, even if he's not in the film. But come on, guys, it's Peter Cushing. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I also, there was somebody in our group, uh, our discussion group on Facebook for uh, 1951 Down Place mentioned we should have a uh, t-shirt made with Peter Cushing's face on it that says Team Cushing. I'm just saying I'd buy that t-shirt easily. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if we can figure out the legalities around that, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Legal schmeagle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but as far as this film is concerned, it did kick off the cycle. It is, I think, one of the most important Hammer films of this decade of the 70s it did establish ingrid pitt as a scream queen a bona fide scream queen she had done some other work for hammer as well she appeared in countess dracula this film looks good it feels good it sounds good i, I like this movie a lot and i appreciate casey bringing it to the table uh, for us to review do you want to talk about the story the story seems is kind of hard to sink your teeth into, no pun intended, uh-huh. <laughs> at first, because we're doing some jumping around at first. So we start out with uh, Baron uh, Hartog, who is dealing with the death of his sister, and he had suspicions of it, and he tracked down the Karnstein Castle, or their tombs, I guess, which I just assumed was part of the Karnstein Castle, so to speak. And he sees what's going on with the Karnstein family. We see uh, a ghostly figure rise from the grave in their, oh, their gauzy robes. I can't think of the proper term for it. The shroud, that's Death it. Death shrouds. Yeah. They're, you know, and he's watching them, and he managed to lure one in and figured out that what they're dealing with is that the Karnsteins are actually vampires. And he kills off the first one. But there's more than one Karnstein is the thing. Well, in the process, we we transition from... Baron von Hartog to where we find, run into Peter Cushing, who is a general, I believe. And it's also like 20 or 25 years forward in time. As we see by the powder wig on uh, Baron von Hartog later. <laughs> so we go to the general's house, which is played by uh, Peter Cushing. They're having a, bit, uh, a ball for his daughter's birthday party. And that's when we first see the introduction of... Marcella and her mother, which we assume was her mother, uh, the Countess and whatnot, when they make their interest at the entrance at the party. That's when we first see the introduction of the lesbian qualities of the story because we see 
everybody in the room is eyeballing Marcilla as she walks into the room because she her, her striking beauty and she's captivating and draws everybody's attention. But she's only ha- has eyes for one person in the entire room, which is the general's daughter. Carl, I do love you. What? Every other young man in the room is staring at that girl over there, except you. I do believe she'd like to take you away from me. She keeps staring at you. Nonsense. She's looking at you. And from there, we see that the countess uh, is pulled away because she has a death in the family that she has to run, or a friend that is dying, and she has to leave and asks if she could leave Marcilla there with the general's daughter. And time speeds up again, and we see pretty soon that the general's daughter is suffering from the same affliction that Baron Hartog's sister had perished from. And then again, we jump ahead, and you know, there's a funeral, everybody's sad. We jump ahead, and the Countess is traveling to another location. Their wagon breaks down, and they wind up in the home of Emma. They break down in front of the Morton Castle, which is the home of Emma that we met briefly at the uh, the General's Ball. And they're in a rush to get somewhere, and they convince the Mortons to let Marcella stay with them. And so they can proceed on, and we go now on to as Marcella begins to seduce Emma. That's where the meat of our story takes place once we get Marcella to the Morton Castle. And now we settle into a solid timeline. We stop jumping around in time and we start to see the vampiric powers of seduction from Ingrid Pitt go to work on the young and white-eyed innocence of Emma Morton. To name drop some of the cast here, uh, Emma was played by Madeline Smith. Uh, we mentioned Ingrid Pitt already as you know in the role of Carmilla, and we also mentioned Peter Cushing as the general, who's fantastic. Baron von Hartog was played by uh, Douglas Wilmer. I enjoyed his character; wasn't on the screen enough, but I, I did enjoy his his work. And there's also the the governess at the Morton Estate, played by Kate O'Mara, who becomes is it O'Mara or O'Mara? Do we know? O'Mara, I think. Yeah, and she also becomes part of a. It's almost a full-on like love triangle, almost. I mean, they kind of dance around it a little. Well, I guess it does consummate later. Uh, but she's also in the mix, <laughs> and, and she's important uh, to the film here as well. Uh, we've got the, the local doctor, played by Ferdy Maine. He becomes important. Roger Morton, played by George Cole. He becomes important as well. Uh, this has got a pretty solid cast, uh, which is important because, as Casey said at the beginning, it does get a little I, – I felt a little confused, a little yeah. off-put. By what was happening, and it's not that I wasn't paying attention. I mean, I watched this movie like three times to prepare for the podcast, but and not yeah. just, and not just that one scene. But I mean, I watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to be fair, though, I've seen this movie probably. I watched it probably three times myself to get ready for this podcast. That brought me, I might told probably up to oh seven or eight times I've watched this movie all the way through, and it's still hard for me to puzzle through at the beginning as well. It's a little jarring. It's a little jarring, and you know, I mentioned Bruce Hellenbeck writing for uh, Little Shop of Horrors. He mentions that this film is structured a lot like Psycho, and I can totally see that in that uh, the, <laughs> there's like a mini story at the very beginning with Hartog searching out the vampires, dispatching the vampires, taking care of business. What we think might be our lead vampire villain in the film is dispatched pretty quickly, and then right. we get into 
the rest of the film. So it, it does feel a little like that to me. I can buy that. I feel it's a little bit more James Bondish in that, again, we're seeing the end of one mission and then we move on to the next story, say, for the 20, 25 year gap between the beginning and end. But it's funny yeah. that you mentioned uh, Psycho because I'm sure I heard some of Psycho's riffs in the soundtrack. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I love the score of this. It is pretty in-depth. It's rich. It's long. Uh, there's about 75 minutes worth of music prepared for this film. And the composer, Harry Robinson, had 10 days to put it together. I, I wouldn't say it was pulled directly from, but I could see maybe some psycho influence, especially considering the story construction at the beginning. I could see that, or more appropriately, I can hear that. I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but as far as the music goes, there's a lot of it that feels very waltz-like. This kind of heavy, romantic, almost like dance-type music. Not just during the dance scene, but through the whole film, there's this kind of dancing kind of quality to it, a romantic dance to it that I think lends itself to the film because there's so much of the film, which is this lesbian romantic dance between the characters, especially the three, you know, the three women. Before we get too far away from the opening, I wanted to give my thoughts on it. I guess maybe I watched a different movie from you guys because this was the first time I ever saw it, and I didn't have any trouble following along with it because I thought it was so slow. <laughs> the, the beginning sequence with Weimer and them? That and the dance uh, at uh, the generals, you know, just there wasn't anything going on. And I just really had a hard time getting into it. I was able to follow it. I understood that that beginning was, you know, sort of a flashback uh, to, to set up the Karnsteins and, and to set up uh, Baron Hartog. And then the, the jump into the future, because there's, a, there's one point where uh, the general actually goes off to find his old friend, uh, Baron von Hartog. But I had a hard time getting into the film at the beginning because it just seemed like there wasn't anything going on. There was all of this eye contact and, um, you know, maybe this waltz that you're talking about starting that just, it was hard for me to identify with and, and to get into. That's a fair point. The, uh, especially like going through, as getting it, uh, getting ready for this podcast as I went through and watched it. I can see this movie being a lot more drama than horror, especially early on. The horror stuff doesn't really show up until towards the very end, would be my interpretation of it. Vampires show up early on, and we do see that early on, but there's the way the pacing is, and it's all the way it flows is more of a drama than anything. I think for me, I agree with Scott that it does feel slower, and it does feel like they're trying real hard to get to this, this build, this building point, this boiling point with Carmilla. Marquila, Marcilla, Peter Pitt's <laughs> character. I wonder how much of that had to do with American International Pictures insisting that Peter Cushing or somebody recognizable from Hammer be in the film. Bad news. A dear friend of mine is dying. I am so very You will forgive me leaving you like this. Is there anything I can do? Well, I... Oh, I hardly dare to ask you. But my daughter, Marcilla. It is a long journey. We must ride all night. My dear Countess, I assure you it would be my pleasure to look after your daughter, if you so wish. 
And she'll be good company for Laura. General, you are too kind. I must tell Marcella. My understanding is that Cushing was not originally going to be part of the film to begin with. Yeah, it was part of the agreement that Hammer made with American International Pictures to get the, the funding was they required that a named actor be in the film. Yeah, a recognizable person needs to be in the film because without it, how are we going to sell it, you know? Right. So, enter Peter Cushing, who I think is an inspired choice for that particular role specifically because in the end, he does ultimately become responsible or partly responsible for dispatching our vampires. And just as he, an older Peter Cushing doing what he did back in the 50s as Van Helsing, you know, it's like coming home. I mean, it's, it's nice. Yeah. And he brings a different flavor of vampire killer than he did with the Van Helsing character. Uh, he feels a little more world-weary, a little bit more accepting of his fate as opposed to somebody who's aggressively going out and doing it as Van Helsing in the Dracula films. So I'm glad he's in the film. I also think he cuts quite a striking figure or image in that general suit and the red jacket. I love how he looks, but because he was, or that character or that actor, because their American International Picture needed that recognizable hammer face, I wonder if part of the reason why it felt slow it has to do with that. It wasn't necessarily yeah. originally part of the storyline. That section could easily, I could easily see that section of the movie being added on after the fact, especially the ball, because they could have gone from Hartog straight to the Mortons and still had a pretty cohesive and decent story. And they threw that as stuff. That, it almost feels like that ball section was tacked on there to, you know, like you said, to get Cushing in there, to throw him in the mix. And then they used that opportunity to set up like, you know, a little bit of backstory to thread in there with uh, Cushing's daughter and her afflictions and Marcella being st- sent there and then to show that she's repeating her actions. So I can see where it doesn't flow as well with the rest of the movie. Once we get through the dance sequence and we start getting to life with Emma and Marcella, did it pick up at that point for you, Scott? No, not really. In, in all honesty, I feel this movie didn't know what it wanted to be. It tried hard to be a drama. It tried hard to be a horror film. It tried hard to be a sexploitation film. And to me, it failed on all levels. It just, it tried so hard to be different things and it didn't mesh well. And that probably should be more closer to the end of the show. <laughs> no, no, it's, no, it's fine because it, it gives us an opportunity to talk about the producers. Yeah. So Harry Fine and Michael Style were the producers that brought this to the table for Hammer. Uh, Carreras wasn't necessarily as involved in the project as he had been in previous Hammer films. Again, this is a different era for Hammer. It's not you know, the, the heyday of the Frankenstein and Dracula films and all the other films they were doing at the time. So you know, things are different. And these two producers who the director, Roy Ward Baker, feels really wanted to make an exploitation film. Uh, they, they bring the project to the table. And, you know, I've, I've read a few interviews with uh, Baker in which he said he didn't really get along with the producers. At one point, the producers wanted to fire him. He was not going to give them the kind of movie that they wanted. He was not going to make an, a sexploitation film. He was going to make the best damn film he could. And he wasn't going to turn it into a sex film. He wasn't going to turn it into an exploitation film. And, you know, Madeline Smith seems to... Uh, agree with that in various interviews that we've read or we've seen. Uh, Casey, you found a link 
with with her, uh, in which she said she was a very willing (laughs) exploitee, didn't mind at all. Uh, Her whole point was to make people laugh and that sort of thing. So she didn't really feel any kind of regret over these kinds of films. Ingrid Pitt herself said she didn't even think the film was about lesbianism. Uh, She said that (laughs) uh, (laughs) vampires can't be lesbians because vampires don't have sex. They're dead creatures. They don't have a sexual drive, which seems totally in contradiction with kind of this overall feel of or, or school of thought when it comes to vampires and, you know, the, I mean, these sexual animals, these sexual predators. And I mean, Christopher Lee certainly brought sex to the table with his portrayal as Dracula. But she says repeatedly that this is not a lesbian film at all, that this is more about Carmilla looking for a spiritual connection versus any kind of sex drive. So I can see a lot of different things coming to the table at once. You know, the producers want this kind of film. AIP wants that kind of film. Carreras doesn't want this, wants that. Baker certainly isn't going to give him this. So I wonder if some of that kind of jumbled it up for you. Well, I think if this movie had been made 10 years earlier, it would have been probably more straight of the vampire horror film. If it had been made 10 years later, it would have been a late-night Cinemax movie. It had that it had both of those feelings to it, and those, in my mind, don't mesh very well. And it just seemed like it was in a crossroads, not only of in, in British cinema, it was in a crossroads of cinema in general. Because, because you're going from classic horror films and gothic stories to you know, a time of free love and everything else that was going on in the world. And of course, movies are going to reflect what's going on in the real world. So you're going heading that direction as well. And I think this film just, it came out at the wrong time or it tried to emulate everything that was going on. And it just, it was a jumbled mess. Sorry, Casey. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I won't hold it against you this time. No, (laughs) Now, for me, there's a, this movie comes in at a time, you know, where when I first started exploring the Hammer flicks, and it's probably, you know, like 10 years ago or something like that, I was watching a lot of the Draculas and the early Frankensteins and whatnot. So I'm used to that gothic horror. I knew what to expect and whatnot. So when we throw in the vampire lovers and we start to see all this, not knowing the history of what was going on with Hammer and whatnot, you know, just the fact of the direction that they went with it as far as the exploitation and stuff like that was just pretty... I want to say eye-opening, but to beyond the point, the fact of it was, you know, Ingrid Pitt and her girls. <laughs> beyond the fact of that, because it turned Hammer into something completely different at the time when we watched it, and it opened up my eyes to, you know, a lot of what came later. And you see a lot of that as it gets refined later on, you know, and you see elements of that getting refined and even Captain Kronos, and, you know, when, which came after this. And whatnot. So, yeah, I could see it being a fumbling attempt at that. Almost, you could say, like the fumbling attempt of a virgin trying to undo his girlfriend's bra strap. (laughs) 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 There is is a bit of a fumbling going on there as that. But then I think this is the seed of what becomes something bigger that Hammer really becomes known for in their later years. I don't want to come out sounding like a prude or anything. In fact, I really like Twins of Evil. Because I think one thing that this is missing that that one had is a better cast. I liked Ingrid Pitt. I thought she was outstanding and would love to watch her more in the role of a vampire. But (laughs) every time she's on the screen, the actors that are with her are very 
one-dimensional. They're they're very the women are almost clueless, and I didn't feel that they were as strong of of actors uh, to be in there with 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 Pitt, and so she was acting against nothing. You know, if they had some scenes with her with um, George Cole or Peter Cushing or or somebody that has better acting chops. I think it would have been a better film, but you never see those two together except for very briefly at the ball. And I feel that's another downfall of this movie is that Ingrid Pitt wasn't given anybody to act against. If you read uh, interviews with Madeline Smith later on and whatnot, this was only like her second or third film. So she was very inexperienced and she happily admits it too. She, she, you know, she kind of gives the impression that she didn't even think she was right for the part in the first place. But at the same time, she was supposed to be wide-eyed and innocent and completely clueless as far as the character of Emma went, and I thought she fit that fairly well from what she had to work with. Basically, I like the Madeline Smith performance in this. I thought she did that well, but the other actors, characters you see Ingrid Pitt working against later on, I do see that it is more one-dimensional because those characters aren't fleshed out quite as well. See, for me, this is the actress's film. The exception of Peter Cushing and... Douglas Wilmer a little bit. I feel like for this film, it's it's success rests on the performance of Pitt and Smith and O'Mara specifically, because those three, it's really, it's their story really. And I didn't have a problem with the acting in terms of them not delivering the Smith and O'Mara characters or actresses. I didn't have a problem with them not delivering. What I had a problem with is that they didn't deliver at the same level. That Pitt did. Pitt is such borderline aggressive female character or performer <laughs> in this film, and I don't, yes. I'm not talking about the pursuit of you know Emma or whatever. As a performance, her ability to fill the screen with just her charisma, her persona, her character is so strong. It's like she's screaming through the entire film, and everybody else is trying real hard to keep up with her. Now that yeah. said, I felt like there were some there were some moments that I really did like with Pitt and Smith specifically, right after, well, the bathtub scene. <laughs> um, I, I did like their performance in that when they emerge from the the dressing room and they're both wearing their dresses and they're going to dinner and you know Emma is constantly like looking to the ground and uh, she's not making eye contact with any of the men. Quite lovely. Thank you. I did like that, and I think that she pulled off this, we just did something that they would think is really naughty <laughs> kind of role or performance. I did like that, but that said, throughout the film, if Pitt wasn't so blasted good, <laughs> uh, I think we'd think Smith and O'Mara were better. Yeah, and really, Ingrid Pitt is such a force to reckon with in this movie. That's... And it's no, there's no question whatsoever why she received her cult status from this movie. I mean, you could say it as crassly as Inger Pitt in this movie radiates sex. Mm-hmm. There's just an air about her that's like, holy crap. <laughs> Without even taking off her clothes. Exactly. I mean, so much of what she does is in her eyes anyway. You take off the clothes and AIP's happy. But, you know, her just her <laughs> eyes, uh, she is just this, 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 uh, this, this, tempest this this storm of sexuality even though the vampires can't be lesbians right (laughs) 
And on the opposite side of it, then you got you have Madeline Smith, who's doing the. To me, she's putting in kind of the same amount of performance, but hers is instead of being this sexual beast, she is a beast of innocence. You see things like when uh, her the governess is working with her on her German lessons, and you know she's trying to get out of it. You see her bat her eyelashes, and you know, and being all wide eyed and smiling and stuff like that to get her to you know to like, okay, we can stop. Der Mund, die Augen, die Augenbrau, die Augen, die Augen. I can't say it. The Augenbrow. Oh. The eyebrow. German's so difficult. Oh, but you must try. I'll try tomorrow. All right. You better get ready for dinner. Your father will be home soon. Yes. She's turning that same charm on that Inger Pitt has in that character of Marcilla, but she's doing it with innocence instead of sultriness. And it comes across just as strong, and you see that a lot pop up, and, you know, and the, you know, the little teehees and the giggles and stuff like that. But again, I also see Scott's you know, point as well, and there's a lot of things in this film that if maybe they had a little more time, they could have refined and made everything blend a little better, spend a little bit more time in that cinematic blender to make a, a more smooth film altogether. Yeah, I disliked Madeline Smith's performance. I didn't feel any of what you're saying. She reminded me, and I, and I hate to say this, but that's the only term I can think that fits in my mind, is she was an airhead. She was a blank canvas. She was just there for Ingrid to seduce. I didn't feel she kept up her end of any of the conversations between the two characters. I disliked when she was on the screen i mean she was beautiful to look at but she was not a very good actress well we can agree to disagree yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if her character is really supposed to do more than just be seduced but uh she does become i don't know kind of a a trigger i suppose to get peter cushing back into the mix and all that so i guess i would like to have seen ingrid pitt on the screen with somebody that could at least battle for the attention on the screen with her acting wise. Mm. And that's, and that's maybe what I'm really saying is you know, the people that she was on the screen with, she totally dominated acting wise. And I wanted to see her, you know, have somebody on the screen that could act at her level and challenge her a little bit. Maybe that makes sense. And well, that's what I was saying too, is that she is such a force to be reckoned with on the screen that, you know, almost everybody you put her on screen with is going to sh- you know, shrink back a little bit, intentionally or not. And you're absolutely right there. I think Smith's acting chops are not at the level of yeah. Pitt. And I don't know if that's an acting thing. I don't know if it's a directing thing. I don't know if that's a script thing. But for whatever reason, she overshadows everything. And, and I can see where you're coming from, too, because I, I do think the only people that would actually match up to her, you know, are the people like, you know, Peter Cushing and whatnot that we see earlier in the film. I think they would have held their ground against her. So I can see that, you know, side of your argument. And I would have loved to have seen Pitt and Cushing back and forth on this film, you know, more than – I don't think they actually ever meet, do they? In, no. in terms of combat or battle. Uh, we, no. 
that's another issue I have with this film. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is no combat or battle. The ending is so unsatisfying. You don't see the forces of good defeat the forces of evil in a fair fight. Well, they knew they were going to make a sequel. Two days after this film began production, Hammer said, let's get a sequel going. Two days after they started <laughs> this, shooting this film. Whether it was going to be successful or not, they had already decided that they're going to go ahead and, and do a part two or a follow-up or another Karnstein film. So I wonder if that also may have crept into the mix. I didn't feel let down by the ending. Oh, I did. Say, uh, because it is an older Cushing. It is an older Vampire Hunter uh, with uh, Hartog, Von Hartog. So I, I didn't expect them to go riding into battle and, you know, torches blazing, you know, getting the, the villagers behind them. I didn't expect that. I didn't mind the kind of snooping through the graveyard and taking care of business thing. I liked that part. I was hoping that Ingrid Pitt's character would then show up and actually fight with them. And part of me wanted her to win if they're going to do a sequel. Because I think she would, it would have been a fascinating uh, back and forth between her character and Roger Morton and uh, the general and Baron von Hartog. If we're going for, you know, this you know, the lesbian look or the, you know, the women empowerment or however you want to say it, I would love to have seen her, even though they all three were older, they, they've had experience doing what they, at least um, Baron Van Hartog. So I would like to have seen that battle. There was nothing. It was just, uh, let's take her. It's done. And I wonder, you know, Casey, have you read the original story? I haven't read the story. I don't, I haven't either. Yeah. And, and Scott, you haven't, right? No, I have not. So I wonder again, if, some of this comes from the source material being a product of its time. I mean, we're talking 16 years before Dracula. It was written as this kind of gothic romance kind of thing that didn't have a lot of riding into battle or, or having this big confrontation between good and evil at the end. Because my impression is that the source material doesn't have that. Okay. That the source material is like – that doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's okay to let it slide in a film. I mean, it, it would have been nice to have a, a stronger confrontation at the end. But again, I feel like, you know, they knew, they knew they were going to do a sequel. And, you know, that's well, for me, this works in, in a lot. The ending works for me in a lot of different reasons. And, you know, a lot of it is just buying into the story and throwing the logic to the wind. Because, I mean, if you want to think about it logically, you could find some problems and whatnot. But, like, we see parts in, in, in the movie, towards the middle of the movie, where, um, I think is Peter Cushing's daughter dies at her funeral, and no, I'm sorry, I take that back. That was another village woman who had died um, mysteriously, of course. Yeah, the, they, wood, uh, the woodcutter's daughter. Right, they're at her funeral, and Emma's talking about how she thinks funerals are sad but kind of beautiful, and then Marcella freaks out and starts having this little tantrum about everybody dies, everybody dies, and she, it's kind of that that gothic "I'm forever alone" moment. Because she knows that she's forever going to outlive anybody that she falls in love with. And we at this time, we already see that she's fallen in love with uh, Emma and whatnot. Stop it! Stop it! Camila, what is it? Nothing. Only that dreadful noise. The funeral. But it's the woodman's daughter. I hate funerals. Hate them! I thought it rather sad, and yet beautiful. You must die. Everybody must die. But you were so young. There's been so much tragedy in the village recently. 
The blacksmith's young wife died only last week. My father said, Oh, you really are upset, Camilla. And I've been saying all these foolish things. Come on, let's go home. So then we get towards the end of the movie, and she's so concentrating on... This is how I interpret it anyways, but she's so concentrated on getting Emma to be with her for as long as she can and find, fending off people that are starting to figure out and stuff like that, that she kind of forgets to watch her flank and these people sneak in and grab her. And so everything kind of boils up as it's starting to fall away from her. And she's so focused on trying to overtake Emma and whatnot and fight everybody off of that. She leaves the back door open and they basically come in and they kill, sneak in and kill her. And so that you did for me, you didn't need that big epic battle at the end because it kind of shows her weaknesses and the flaws of her plans and whatnot. And then also how she's more of a impulsive person and, you know, and going more concerned with having that immediate satisfaction of her love and, you know, young redheads and whatnot, instead of the <laughs> thinking strategically to keep herself safe. Well, remember, it's not about lesbianism, though. Remember, it's not a lesbian film. <laughs> Casey, I would agree with you 100 percent if she hadn't left that battle to head back to being in her um, coffin. If she would have stayed there fighting for Emma and dying there, I would buy that argument. But she left. I figured she left, and she showed back up at the Karnstein's castle. The battle was getting ready to start. When she came back, they they had the coffin open and the stakes ready to pound into her chest. So there wasn't a whole lot for her to do. Well, she could have. I don't think the they had the coffin open yet. They were carrying it to the. Um, I think that came afterwards because I'm pretty sure they had popped her coffin open, and because she, she didn't open her eyes until they had the stake on her chest. That is a weird scene though, because as, up until this point, we didn't see her do other than like the dreams that the that her victims were having and stuff like that. We didn't see a whole lot of supernatural per se from Marcella's character till all of a sudden here towards the end, this young guy holds up a knife that's in the shape of a cross and she disappears. And that's kind of out of nowhere. So I could see where that is. That, that in itself is a bit of a problem because it doesn't fit in with the, with the context of what we've already seen that her powers are going into it. Well, and that said, there's a lot about the vampires in this film that don't necessarily fit in with the quote unquote rules of vampires, especially as far as Hammer goes. I mean, this is a completely different kind of vampire. Yeah. You know, they, they can walk around in the daylight, even though they like to stay in the shade. We see reflections and mirrors. And they turn into cats. And they, yeah, there's, there's the shape shifting the cats. And I mean, the weird dreams that come from being involved with the vampire. I didn't like the dream sequences. I thought they were a little, little silly. But there's a lot of different things happening here in terms of what a vampire is, as far as Hammer's concerned. It's internally consistent, except for that one moment at the end where suddenly Carmilla can fade away and transport yeah. to the coffin. I did like how that was done. I thought it looked nice. But, yeah, it does kind of come out of the blue as well. To be fair, though, I think Hammer was aware that, that they introduced these inconsistencies in their vampire mythos and stuff like that because in 74, then we see them explain all that away in Captain Crotus when they start talking about how there are different species of vampires and whatnot. You know, they each have different powers and different qualities and whatnot. And I say that explained in a way, but at the same time, which we forgot to bring up in that Captain Kronos episode. <laughs> Yeah. 
they make a brief mention that one of the vampires they're dealing with is a Karnstein. Oh yeah, we we left that in when you mentioned that. Yeah, that that ah. does get name dropped, which I think is a, a nice little nod. So I mean, I suppose technically. You could say that, yeah, this is a different breed, a different species of vampire. And I like that idea. I like the idea of a Hammer universe, film universe, in which there's the Christopher Lee Dracula stuff all happening. Captain Kronos is going to happen here. You know, this stuff is happening here. And who knows how Countess Dracula works into the mix. But I like the idea of this as being this one overall Hammer world. (laughs) In which there's like 20 different clones of the same guy who looks like Peter Cushing. (laughs) (laughs) It was is fighting vampires and making Frankenstein monsters and doing all this other stuff. And for me, when I first discovered this film, that's what made this one so appealing was because you're seeing a different kind of vampire. Because we all know Dracula, we all know the Christopher Lee Dracula, and but you know we do him fairly well. And you get into this and you start seeing there's a whole clan of vampires for one, which is not common. A whole family of them, and then they've got these different powers and whatnot. When you look at this in a whole as a trilogy, you see how far stretching this this whole clan of vampires is. Oh yeah. Especially when you get to twins because twins of evil takes place chronologically before this film. So we see that there's kind of a a history, a legacy to the Karnsteins that's introduced. Uh, Tudor Gates mentions in an interview, Tudor Gates is the writer of the film. He mentioned in an interview that if there was still money and if things didn't change, they would have made 14, 15, however many Karnstein films. And I will, I like that idea. I like that hammer, didn't just make a, a Dracula film because it was successful when Universal did it. They didn't just make a Frankenstein film because it was successful when Universal did it. They found something that hadn't been overly exploited or used yet when it comes to cinema, horror cinema, vampire cinema. And they really made a, a, a huge blip on the radar with vampire lovers and especially Twins of Evil in terms of bringing something new that audiences hadn't seen by bringing in the Karnsteins. I would have loved to have seen more Karnstein films. I think the idea is solid, like you said, because they do different things. They travel as a family. They travel as a pack. I want to know more about the man in black. Yes. Yes. Can we talk about, about him? Yes. Let's talk about him. That At one point, there was talk of that being Christopher Lee. Yes. But what was his purpose? Well, we don't know. <laughs> in subsequent films, we learn that he's also a Karnstein, right? And he's kind of right. – watching over his family kind of thing, right? I mean, that that's kind of the vibe I get. Okay, if that's true, we've got him, and then we've also got the woman that brings Carmilla to the ball that is supposedly her mother. Right. Now, at one point in the film, Baron von Hartog says that when he broke into the Karnstein mansion, he staked everyone but one, which would have been Marcella. Right. Where did the mom and this man in black come from if Von Hartog staked all the rest of them? Could the mom have not necessarily been a vampire in on the mix, but maybe a former lover who had just continued to age? I can, yeah, I can see that because you never see her doing anything uh, vampire. You don't see her teeth. You don't see anything like right. that. But the man right. in black, you do. Mm-hmm. And we see and we see with, uh, what Marcella does with the governess at the Morton's Castle that you know, she has created thralls. And as possible, so that could explain that. But like, there is no explanation for this man in black, and he shows up. And we never do. I even went back today before we started the show to go back through that section where the, uh, Hartog is walking them through the Karnstein Castle and showing all, all the paintings and stuff, and he's not even there. Yep. Maybe he's got another, you know, family somewhere else. He's taking care of. I, I don't know, but you're right. He kind of just drifts in and out 
I, I listened to the DVD commentary on the DVD of this film to try to find more information about this guy. I wanted to know more about him. He's played by different character or different actors in different films. Uh, he's played by a guy named Mike Raven in the second film, who plays Dracula in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, or the the one that they did with the Shaw Brothers. So, I mean, he's played by different actors and, and that sort of thing. But he's supposed to be this super badass. You know, I mean, he's supposed to be this guy who, when he walks into a room, all the sound stops. Everybody looks at him you know, acknowledge that this force has just entered their dwelling, their area. You know, there's supposed to be this, this air of awe and respect and fear. I didn't necessarily get that from this guy. And I, I don't think it's an acting thing. I think acting he did just fine. He looks intense. He could have done something with his eyes. But the character does feel like there's a missed opportunity or two or three here. There's a lot of cut-in scenes of him that seem like they shot them after the fact of him standing around going, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> now, now, do you think that he could have not been a Karnstein, but he watches over the family because he created them? He was the vampire that attacked yeah. the Karnstein family originally. Well, it's funny because if you dig around on the internet, there's tons of different theories about this guy. And there's a lot of people, you know, I'm pretty much everybody's realized this. And there's a lot of people that have been trying to puzzle through it. And there's a lot of different theories. They mentioned that the Karnsteins were evil in life and even more evil after death. So there's a speculation that maybe it's supposed to be Satan taking, you know, form on mortal form on Earth and watching over him. Which, see, you know, this is obviously involving a little nerd logic and speculation that we're throwing in there. But, I mean, it see, that seems to fit. And yeah. like, that fits in with what you were saying, Scott, that oh, exactly. maybe he's the one that created him. But then you again, know, he, 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 he never shows up to to rescue Marcella or near the end. I mean, you know, I, I kind right. of expected, okay, if Marcella's not going to fight, maybe he's going to show up and fight with him. I just I just wanted something more at the end of this film. Well, and in the second film, in Lust for a Vampire, he's identified as Count Karnstein. So, I mean, in the second film, he's called a Karnstein. So, why is he not more involved? Maybe the crypt that they were in when they were going through and, and killing all the vampires or whatever, it was just the ladies' side of the crypt. You know, the men were buried somewhere else. So. Nah, there was a guy they yep. showed him kill. So. I'm, tr- I'm reaching here. I'm trying, yes. to, I'm trying to explain <laughs> it here. Uh, I don't know. I... I want to know more about him as well. Well, the other speculation, too, is that uh, Hartog was just simply wrong. He didn't find everybody. Yeah. You know, because he, you know, he, he did have a hard time finding Marcella. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> so maybe he just didn't find him. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe that Karnstein was buried somewhere else. You never know. That's one of the plot holes, though, that they never really clear up for us, that they it would have been nice to have more backstory on and I think if they had made more films, well, I don't know. It, maybe I'm, I'm assuming too much because there are sequels to the Frankenstein films. There are sequels to the Dracula films that don't hold together continuity-wise as well. So maybe I'm assuming too much here, but I would have liked to have seen more films to see that character explained. I would have loved to have seen more Karnstein films altogether. I think that would be great, but it didn't happen. Well, and you mentioned too. There is a there is a quality to this guy showing up in here that some of it's kind of tacked in and you know thrown in after the fact and whatnot. And then we see him show up in, like you said, in Lust for a Vampire. I don't I don't remember if he shows up in Twins of Evil or not. It's been a while since I've seen that one. But those were all shot within like a year of each other. Oh yeah, the release dates were seventy one, seventy two, but they were like boom, right on top of each other, right on top of each other. So maybe it's something to the fact that you know they. 
they came up with this guy, the idea of this guy later on, like, oh, we got to make him more prominent in that first film and worked it up there. Because you've got to figure as soon as they, as quick as they start doing that, there's probably some overlap when they started writing the scripts and thinking it through. It just would have been nice to have more. I do yeah. like the idea, though, if he's just off screen, like, ha ha, you know? <laughs> I do like that. I have a lot of issues with the film, but I think there are some wonderful things to enjoy about the film as well. I love how it looks. I prefer the Bray Studios uh, gothic horror films from Hammer, you know, the Frankenstein, the Dracula stuff. I prefer that just – it feels different. It feels more comfortable, more familiar. This one was shot at Elstree and, and, I mean, it's past the Bray Studio days. But I yeah. still like how it looked. I still liked how it felt. I love the set. I like the painted backdrops. Yeah. Yeah, the matte paintings are pretty fantastic. And the director, Roy Ward Baker, does a phenomenal job in this with putting the pieces together of the film. I've heard him called one of Hammer's greatest, if not the greatest director for Hammer. Now, I don't know if I can go that far because I really like Terrence Fisher. But as far as range, the types of movies that he did, he did more than just the Draculas and such. And I think he did a really good job with the material here. I love the shot choices. I love that we get some nice traveling camera shots. We get some nice shots through reflection of mirrors and through peepholes and things like that. I think the camera work is very well done. And it feels lush. It feels like a film that I wish, having said what I said about Bray Studios, that I wish Cushing and Lee and Fisher could have run around in. It would have been nice to see a, a proper Dracula film in this kind of a production. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. It makes sense. I, I agree with you. I, I thought the look of the film was beautiful. I loved the costumes. Uh, like you said earlier, I, I really liked uh, the general's costume. Oh, yeah. That's great. Just to have this bright pop of red. Yes. He <laughs> looks awesome in that. I just. I, I thought there was some. Uh, sorry about that, Scott. I was just going to say, I thought there was. Even the, the costumes and stuff later on when we see Cushing finishing off Marcella and her, t- and her grave and stuff like that, there was, the costume in there was great. And there was some really great throwbacks to his Van Helsing days that they, you know, cued in on there too. Yeah. Scott, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, I just, the, the look was great. I love the, the music, like you mentioned earlier. I thought the music was great. Um, I just wish it had more to work around. I mean, it really does feel like a vehicle for Pitt. Yeah. And I mean, she made the film, I mean, multiple people involved in the film, you know, Tudor Gates, Robert Baker and all them I mean, agree. She made the film and, and I agree as well. I mean, if it didn't have Inger Pitt in the movie, it would not as be an easy sell for me, even though it's got our man Cushing. <laughs> I think she really does sell the film and she wasn't, I mean, they had to fight to get her in the film. Uh, the, she's not a British actress. And they were going to cast somebody else who they said was – ultimately, they said, no, 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 we can't cast her. She's too old, even though we were put the same age. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I mean, they really had to fight to get her in, and I'm glad they did because I, I think she's phenomenal. And, and, this, and, you know, and she's actually older than that other actress. Yeah. Yeah. I did think that was funny because they threw there these – a lot of these actresses are obviously supposed to be 18, 19, you figure, with Emma and that. that They throw Ingrid Pitt in there that they want you to believe is kind of the same area, age, and as beautiful as I think Ingrid Pitt is. She looked 10 years older than all of them. Yeah, well, she's uh, 32 when they made the film. Yeah, and I think the rest were like 21. Mm-hmm. It feels very predatory knowing that she's older than like you know Emma or Madeline Smith. So it feels very predatory on a, on a, 
a very surface level for me during the seduction scene and the seduction scene in the bathtub in the bathroom, which we got to talk about because at the end of last (laughs) month's episode, Casey, you told us about the bathtub scene and we were wondering what Scott was going to think about the bathtub scene (laughs) because of the comments Scott made about how the poster says not for immature minds or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, what did you think of the bathtub scene? It's beautiful to look at. (laughs) (laughs) Those dresses, aren't they beautiful? You may wear one if you want to. May I really? Mm. Emma, hand me that towel over there, please. Yes. Thank you. dress is very pretty, but it's for a country girl. In town, you must be more sophisticated. <laughs> you must take everything off. Try it once. Oh. All right. You can't put it over her bodies. It ruins her shape. I've never worn anything like this. I feel so daring. What did my father say? Oh, he will appreciate it like all men. But I think it will be too big. It's not. I'm sure it's not. I'll show you. Look, Camila. <laughs> what did I tell you? Take the other dress I have. No. It's too small for me. No, I don't yes, want you to. Yes, you must. Take the other dress. I want you to. I want you to. No. I'll say, Go put me. the other dress. I'm... No. That scene does feel the most exploitive of all. Uh, I was going to say so. creepy. Yeah, it, it does get a little creepy. You add in the fact that Ingrid Pitt is older, and she's really kind of pushing Emma to take off her clothes, to strip down. Uh, she's very free with her body, almost kind of daring Emma to, to look at her in the bathtub. But uh, yeah, she gets out of the she yeah. gets out of the tub and doesn't even puts her towel on, doesn't even bother trying to cover up the curl. She just wraps it around her waist. Yeah, exactly. It, it's almost kind of like this dare. Like I'm naked. I know it. I dare you to look at me. I'm going to keep talking to you. I'm going to maintain eye contact. You're going to focus on me. Look at me. I'm naked. It, it's very aggressive and. Uncomfortable to watch on your iPod while you're on the bus going back and forth to work. <laughs> yeah, I uh, <laughs> I mean, I do like the scene, but yeah, it is a little much. Um, I wanted to talk. I found a, a quote from Ingrid Pitt because when she they shot the scene, she didn't have a problem being naked. She's like, yeah, I know I look good. Show it off. I'm totally comfortable with it. But she did ask for a closed set during that scene. And I'd like to just read this quote from Ingrid Pitt from, again, that little shop of horrors magazine. When the day came for me to shoot the scene in the bath, I came out of my dressing room clad in nothing but a white toweling dressing gown held loosely in place over my naked body. As I walked down the corridor, Harry Fine and Michael Stile, the excommunicated producers, were coming towards me. They looked so depressed and miserable that I felt guilty for having robbed them of their fun. We were just about eyeball to eyeball when they looked up and I knew what to do. Whee! I threw my robe open to let them see what they were missing. They certainly went off with a renewed spring in their step. It's so easy to make men happy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this movie was over. Or, no, I'm sorry. This scene, the bathtub scene, is, 
over the top and it is clearly mature it is creepy but and we you mentioned before that some of the times that anger pits interactions with uh madeline smith and stuff like that are predatory too but to me that all fits the story because she was a predator she was there to seduce and feed on young women and it fit the character i'm sure it made american international pictures happy as well yeah this was the first r-rated film from aip they had been doing teen fair. They had been doing movies marketed directly to that drive-in audience. Well, it's the 70s now. You know, drive-ins are big in the 50s and 60s. It's the 70s now, and they want to stay relevant, and they want to stay profitable. How do you do that? Well, you release an R-rated film, and it's interesting to me because in today's horror fan atmosphere or the horror genre, a lot of times the horror fan base rails against PG-13 movies and in horror movies that are marketed towards kids and things like that. And it's interesting to me to see that this isn't necessarily a, a modern phenomenon, that this isn't something that you know horror fans care about now, that it goes all the way back to the 70s with AIP releasing this R-rated movie because they know that's who's going to see this, this, uh, this film. This is how they're going to help market this film. If they had released a vampire lovers and said it was a a rated G film and take the nudity out, it wouldn't have done as well. I don't think, but using the rating as a marketing tool for American cinema, I thought was really interesting to see happen in the seventies. You know, Hammer had been doing it for years in the UK, you know, by saying this was an X rated film and even worked the X into like, uh, like some of their poster art design. But it was just interesting to me to see that in the seventies using the rating as part of the marketing. Meh. I don't know where I was going with that, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> and historically, I mean, it is the first R-rated film and from AIP, whereas some previous Dracula films were rated G for American audiences. So just kind of a changing time. I'm just going to throw in there, though, that, yes, this is my, my number two favorite Hammer film of all time. And I, and, but that's not to say that I'm not – that I'm oblivious to the problems that the movie has. There, I agree that you know there are some problems. There's some plot holes. There's some – there's some over-the-top issues and stuff like that. But to me, it all wraps together in a really good hole to make a fairly captivating story. I said, despite the obvious draws, you know, of Ingrid Pitt and her lack of clothes and whatnot. And I'm not going to lie, that stuff is appealing, too. And while I know it's not the same as, you know, a lot of the later exploitation films we got, this was a good mix of getting, you know, some of that gothic hammer horror, a little bit of exploitation without feeling overly sleazy yes it did feel a little sleazy but not as bad as some of the grindhouse and sexploitation flicks we saw coming out before this Uh, yeah i can see that i feel like again i'm going to go back to uh what scott was saying there seems like there's a lot of things here that just don't deliver to their potential it doesn't know what kind of movie it wanted to be i have a quote from the director from the 1977 book the horror people A film about lesbian vampires was a logical development, really. I mean, they'd done everything with vampires that could possibly be done, and they just had to think of something else. Someday, somebody will come up with Lassie the Vampire out of sheer desperation. (laughs) But it was fun to make. It was a good-ish script, though it was rather repetitive. The second half was almost the same as the first. And I think that that feeling of, well, it was good, and they had to do something different, does kind of seep its way into the film. That there are so many things that they're doing that they're trying to be different, that maybe nothing really hits the same buttons that the earlier Dracula films did. I don't know. Uh, you know, and I'd be lying to say too that a large, you know, a large part of the reason I like think this movie is my number two is because of Anger Pitt. Not only is she gorgeous and stuff like that, but the performance she puts in there, I think, is probably one of the better ones out, for me, one of the better ones out of the entire Hammer catalog. 
because she's just that big of a force to reckon with on screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one last thing that I want to pull up from some of the research that we did on the film in the documentary Hammer Horror, A Fan's Guide, I found this interesting, and I don't know if this has to do more with perspective and age and that sort of thing. In all the research material that's out there, all the interviews, all the commentary tracks, everything that they've done with Roy Ward Baker, he says repeatedly, not an exploitation film, worked really hard to make it a straight film. I didn't want it to be, quote unquote, funny about the subject. I wanted it to be a straight up film. The sex elements, the exploitation elements are there. I own them, whatever. But in this documentary that came out in 2008, he says through very sad eyes that he was thoroughly unhappy about the nudity and pornography in the film. And that seemed odd to me because in everything else that I'd read about this film, he owned it, no problem with it, wasn't an exploitation film, did what I needed to do, even though the producers wanted something else. But in this one little documentary, he says he was kind of unhappy about the pornography. Now, obviously, by today's standards, it's not porn at all. Yeah. Uh, if, if the women had never revealed you know, themselves completely, if the nudity was out, I mean, this would, this would pass as PG, a soft PG. But, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so – but uh, I, I don't know. I don't find it exploitive. I feel like parts of the film want to rely on the nudity more than the nudity can support because the nudity isn't being exploitive. I, uh, I wanted more, I suppose. Yeah, really, the only exploitative part of this movie, I would say, is the bathtub scene. Everything else is – there is nudity beyond that, but it's more toned down and it's more in line with what's going on on the screen instead of being completely gratuitous. I I have to disagree a little bit. I would say the bathtub scene and where she bites the girls. She doesn't bite them on the neck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> well, and I was going to say I, you know, yeah, Ingrid Pitt looked great naked. You know, Smith. I mean, it's like I'm a guy. Okay, I can own that. But for me, the scene that is the most arousing or erotic, almost is a scene in, towards the beginning of the film where the women are pressing up against each other. They're fully clothed, but the camera drifts down to show the cleavage of the two women. And I think there's a cross. One of them's wearing a cross around their neck, so it kind of gets stuck in there a little bit. And it's just this, the, the, the bosoms kind of pressed together. That, to me, was more erotic and arousing than <laughs> Ingrid Pitt fully naked in a bathtub. I can see that. Now, I will say that as far as like where she bites them, to me, that fits in. It is a little bit exploitive. Yeah, I'm not going to deny that, but it's it fits in with the story because we see it when she goes when she first bites uh, Emma. It's more for Marcella. It's more of a. It comes across as a as a part of almost making love to her or how that starts. So it would make sense that she would bite them in that area because it's more of a sexual experience for Marcella than. You know, because she's hypnotizing them, and there's the whole sex vibe going and stuff like that. So they're ties in there. Now, I I did forget though. There is a scene early on that it's nothing but exploitative. When um, I think it's uh, Peter Cushing's uh, daughter when she's first getting ready to die, die. The doctor they bring the doctor in to look at her, and he goes to listen to her chest, and they obviously he just rips open her shirt, so one boob pops out, and so he could listen to her chest. I'm like, yeah, that didn't really need to be there. <laughs> And it's so awkward because her dad comes into the room and is looking at her, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude. <laughs> that was a one moment in this movie. It's like, come on, guys, cover that up. <laughs> yeah. And 
I, I do have to say, and I, I don't know if maybe I'm just reading way too much into it, but is there this vibe of to stop the lesbian vampire, you just take this large phallic object and stick it in her and she stops being a lesbian vampire? I don't know if I'm reading into it or being overly politically <laughs> correct, but is there kind of this use the phallic symbol to stop the lesbian kind of thing? I don't know. I I didn't find a lot of research on it, but... Well, that's the way you get rid of any vampire, though. Yeah. Yeah, I know, but in this one, it's usually done right between the breasts, and I don't know. But they did the same thing to the one uh, guy vampire that he dug up. Yeah, I know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm reaching. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't read the original story. Uh, the climate <laughs> was definitely different when the original story was released. And I hadn't seen any other versions of the film, even a version of the film that had Christopher Lee playing the man in black character. Uh, I haven't seen that either. So I, I wonder how it's handled in other films. Uh, for me, I like the film okay. I like a lot of elements of the film more than the film itself. I like the parts versus I like liking the whole. I love Peter Cushing. I love at the end when he's got this world-weary kind of, yeah, I thought I put this vampire killing business behind me. <laughs> I love that at the end when he's taking people. I love the decapitations. I think the decapitations makeup-wise were handled very well. From what I understand, that was the first time Ingrid Pitt met Peter Cushing is right after she, he cut off her head. Nice. That uh, he, he does the scene and he's holding her head and Ingrid Pitt walks in and he's like, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love Cushing in this. And, and one more story to relate. Baker talks on the commentary track of the DVD about how when Cushing was given a script for the film, he came back with watercolor drawings of what he thought his character would be, you know, what the character should look like in the film. He had also prepared a list of what would be in the character's pockets, which, <laughs> you know, goes to the whole props Cushing you know, myth or legend of, you know, he always knows so much about his character. He's looking for something to fiddle with and do something with, have some business on the side. I didn't see so much of that in this film, but knowing that he thought about what might be in his pocket so he would be able to pull something out if need be, I mean, that's just Mr. Cushing, you know, Master Cushing doing what he does best. So I, I do like a lot of the parts. I like Cushing. I like Pitt. I love the music. I love the set, which I believe was a, a golf course. Uh, at one point, uh, supposedly, if you look in the background, you can see some golf holes and things like, you know, some greens and all that. I didn't notice it, but I love the set. I love the design. I like a lot about this movie, but overall, I think there are some pieces that don't come together the way that I wanted them to. I agree with you. I love the, the look of the film. It was beautiful. The, the music was great. I enjoyed Peter Cushing's uh, acting. I enjoyed Ingrid Pitt's acting, but the way they were used and some of the huge plot holes in the film and just the incoherent mess of what this film wanted to be was enough for me to just be very off-putting and I did not enjoy this film. So it's not in your top five, huh, Scott? <laughs> Does this go further up your chart, Casey, having watched it again? Or is it still number two for you? It's still number two for me and I think it's very solidly. I still enjoy it for what it is and, you know, despite the plot holes and everything else, I think partly, mostly because of the tour de force uh, Vingard Pitt. I liked uh, Madeline Smith in this a lot. I did like Peter Cushing in this, but to me, it's not really a Peter Cushing movie. It's an Inger Pitt movie. So um, I just like the whole thing as a whole in the package and the sexy vibe it puts out. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go any, it doesn't make its way into my top five either. But 
I am glad that I had a chance to watch it and talk about it on the show and kind of dig into some of the behind the scenes because I feel like Baker is a competent director, a solid director, and makes me wonder what he would have done with more Dracula material proper. He did do a Dracula film as well, but to have more Dracula material proper, I wonder how he would have approached the subject matter because he kind of got the vampire thing, I felt. It's a good film for the pieces. It's good to see Cushing. It's good to see Pitt. Overall, though, it, I'm more on Team Scott than Team Casey on this one, brother. Sorry, man. I know, I know it's one of your faves, <laughs> but... <laughs> but I did like Smith more than Scott, so, so there's that. <laughs> uh, so this movie is available on DVD. It was released as uh, a two-pack, I believe. It was released with Countess Dracula on DVD, which does have a commentary track. This film was also released on Blu-ray in Australia. I don't have my hands on it. I haven't been able to track down an Australian retailer that'll ship up to me cheaply, so I haven't seen it yet. I want to, although online reviews have not been too kind to the Blu-ray transfer, that there's not a lot of upconverting that was done, it's not remastered, and the special features seem like they may just be ported over from the DVD release. The DVD does have a commentary track with the director, with Ingrid Pitt, and with the writer, Tudor Gates. like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler. Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B Moviedom. So tune into B Movie Cast at bmoviecast.com. If you haven't listened to the B Movie Cast, y'all are missing out. I mean, it's a great show. They've been great supporters of us here at 1951 Down Place. I've been on the show quite a bit in the past talking about things like zombie movies and John Agar movies and things like that. And this upcoming Sunday, March 4th, we're going to talk hammer over at the B-Movie cast. I'm going to be joining Vince and company to talk about the Peter Cushing film, 
Night Creatures, also known as Captain Clegg. So head over to bmoviecast.com to download that episode after Sunday, or just download it through iTunes. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm probably going to gush about Peter Cushing over there as much as we do over here. I mean, it's Peter Cushing. I mean, I, I can't help it. Now, we have some feedback for this month's episode of 1951 Downplace. But before we get to that, do we want to talk about some of the attaboys that we've gotten lately? Can we just address those? Because I like talking about people saying that we're doing a good job. Certainly. <laughs> you mean besides us talking about that we're doing a good job? Yeah, it's yeah. nice to hear it from somebody other than myself, you know? <laughs> oh, while we're, while we're on the subject, though, good job, Scott. Good job, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good job, Casey. Good job, Scott. And good job, Peter Cushing. Good job, Peter Cushing. <laughs> yes, good job, Casey, and and good job, Derek. And you know, you need to get rid of that third wheel. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Doctor Gang Green, the horror host, he likes us. He really likes us. He sent us uh, an email, right? But yes. he also talked about us on on his blog. Now we've put links on our website at nineteen fifty one down place. Uh, for some of this material or some of this, some of the stuff online that's been said about us. But uh, Dr. Gang Green, I hope you're listening. Thank you, brother, for what you had to say about us over at, our, at your website. Uh, and it's funny because the episode that he listened to first, if I remember reading it correctly, was the episode in which we cited him as a, <laughs> as a resource or a source when we were talking about the Frankenstein film, about uh, yeah. Curse of Frankenstein. So that was a nice little uh, coincidence. But... <laughs> Uh, we definitely appreciate that. And then before that happened, over in the UK, man, Mr. Nigel Burton wrote a very nice article about podcasting in the newspaper, The Northern Echo, and talked about the B-Movie cast being one of his favorite podcasts, a great podcast. But then he also mentioned 1951 Down Place and called us required listening for British horror fans. And if anybody out there would like to read this article, we have a, a scan of the actual newspaper that it appears in. It's over at our website at 1951downplace.com. There's a link at the top that says 1951 Downplace Vault. And in there you will find a PDF scan of the newspaper article itself. Yep. We're right there uh, towards the, the bottom quarter of the article. It's some very nice thing to say about us and, and our, our show, which is still pretty young. But uh, we definitely appreciate it. And we also appreciate the Rondo Award nominee or nomination. We were nominated for a Rondo Award alongside such shows as Mail Order Zombie and Bloody Good Horror, the B-Movie cast, the Nashy cast. So we were right up there with some excellent podcasts. So we appreciate that recognition and the nomination as well. You can head over to rondoaward.com to vote for us if that's what you want to do or vote for your favorites in all the categories that are being nominated for the Classic Horror Film Awards for last year. Well, we mentioned Dr. Gang Green. He also emailed us. Do you want to read that email? I can read it. I've got it up here in front of me. Awesome. Okay, he says, I was going through the podcast nominees on the Rondo Award ballot and I found one that I was not familiar with called 1951 Down Place. I saw it was devoted to Hammer Films and I was intrigued. So I downloaded the first episode and really enjoyed it. Imagine my surprise this morning when I gave episode two a spin and heard my name invoked. What a pleasant surprise. I'm really enjoying the work you guys are doing here. It is well-produced, entertaining, and informative. Definitely looking forward to catching up with all the rest of the episodes. 
I'm particularly fond of the Hammer of Frankenstein series. Curse of Frankenstein would be my number one Hammer film, followed closely by Hound of the Baskervilles. And then he says, one I'm surprised that no one mentioned in their top five. He also enjoys Curse of the Werewolf, Horror of Dracula, and probably either Plague of the Zombies, I love Morel in this one, or Revenge of Frankenstein. Again, good work and look forward to future podcasts. Hope you'll pay some attention at some point to the TV series House of Hammer. Those were pretty good and available through Netflix. Doc Gangrene. Very cool. And dude, he likes Plague of the Zombies, so he's all right in my book. <laughs> yeah. I, I would be interesting. I've not watched any of the uh, TV series House of Hammer. I'm not familiar with that, but I'd be interested in checking that out. They've di- they dipped into TV a few times over the years. Is yeah. it a like Twilight Zone yeah. anthology type series? Yeah, I mean it's less of the spooky, spooky the Twilight Zone, but it is an anthology series. Okay, my understanding is that there was going to be a Blu-ray release or at least a, a re-release of House of Hammer, that the same people who did Vampire Circus were involved in that at some level. But then I heard about that at a panel about a year ago at a horror convention. I haven't heard much about it since. But if it does get a proper re-release, that'd be fantastic. I'll add it to my collection. I think I've already got it on DVD here. And I've seen some of them. I mean, they're definitely TV shows yeah. as opposed to like full-on feature films. But... Again, it really speaks to, or it really feels like a Hammer production where they're working with what they had and had really kind of milked everything they could out of limited sets, limited bun- limited location. So, Well, thanks, Doc Gangreen, for the kind words and, the, and writing in. And you guys should check out his website and his, his show. He's a horror host. Again, look him up on Google or link in the show notes. Uh, we do have one other email that came from uh, Brad, who is part of the Hello, This is the Doomed Show podcast. And he writes in, he says, I've been listening to the start, which is nice and a first for me for a podcast. And the Captain Cronus show compelled me to write to you. (laughs) Captain Cronus is my favorite Hammer film, and I've seen a lot of them. I've been trying to get people to like the Satanic Rites of Dracula for more years, but no avail. And you made several excellent points. Cronus may be a vampire. Very interesting idea, and frankly, I hadn't thought of. I'm going to watch it again with that in mind. Concerning Janison's lack of charisma, I've always had that feeling that he was more of a cool than charismatic. I've always felt that Professor Grost, Dr. Marcus, and Carla added layers to the film that make up for any perceived lack of charisma on Janison's part. I would love to have seen more Captain Cronus films with him fighting different kinds of vampires, although I'm a little sketchy on the Golden Coach time travel idea. I like that they took a different approach on vampires than Hammer usually took, and I feel that Kronos is underrated. I'm really hoping that this is one of the first Blu-rays that we get from Hammer. Anyway, you guys are doing a fantastic job, and I'm looking forward to the vampire lovers and beyond. Brad from Hello, This is the Doomed Show. I'm also a little sketchy on the whole Golden Coach time travel thing, and I'm so glad they did not do that in Captain Kronos. Yeah. That would have been a mess. I would love to hear back from Brad uh, after he watched the film again and with the idea of that Kronos may be a vampire himself. I think he blew a lot of our minds when you brought that up, Scott. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we talked about this earlier in this episode, that golden, uh, the golden carriage or whatever idea, making him kind of like a Doctor Who, the vampire hunting universe. I like the idea of them having a universe populate, you know, a series of movies populated by a universe of Karnstein, evil Karnsteins wreaking havoc across the countryside. Oh, yeah. 
I, I want more Karnsteins. I really do. Even though I'm only really a big, a huge solid fan of Twins, like unabashedly a fan of Twins of Evil, more Karnstein. It would be great. It'd just be nice to have another, you know, vampire touchstone or keystone, you know, in there with the Dracula stuff. So it'd be nice to have. Maybe you could have like this uh, Karnsteins versus Dracula, you know, battle royale thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> do like a big meetup, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and Satanic Rites of Dracula. Brother, I love that movie for all the wrong reasons, but I love Satanic Rites of Dracula. Uh, <laughs> it's actually the film whose music we use to open the show. I'm a big fan of both that and Dracula AD 1972. Over on Facebook, they got brought up a little bit, and people are like, oh, well, you know. And I think even Casey, you said something about them being not so great, but I love them. I'm fine with Satanic Rites of Dracula. It's uh, Dra- 19, uh, what is it, Dracula 9- AD 1972 or whatever. Yeah. That one I have some issues with. <laughs> well, I, 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 yeah, I have issues with them both, but I, again, it's Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. How can you go wrong, man? <laughs> Well, personally, well, I've not it, say personally, I've not seen either one of them, so I can't comment. Well, isn't uh, Satanic Rites of Dracula the one that Christopher Lee has no lines in? No, I believe he speaks in it. Okay, um, it's the final Dracula film for Lee. Right. So it's the last time he does a film um, in that character for Hammer. It's not the final Dracula or vampire films for Cushing there, but at the end of the film, it's. The ending is a little unsatisfying. The way Dracula is killed at the end is a little unsatisfying. But maybe someday we'll talk about that film here on the show. Maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. I I remember now, yeah. that's I remember Satanic Rites of Dracula. Now, looking over the plot, I got confused. I can't remember which Dracula film it was, but there's one of them that uh, Chris Verley has no lines because that was when in the middle of his falling out with a uh, hammer. Yeah. And so there's nothing but like a number of scenes almost like um, – Bella Lugosi in uh, Plane 9 from Outer Space where he stands around in the background with his cape over his face. Yeah. No, that, that did happen. Was that – that wasn't Scars of Dracula. Was I don't remember which Dracula it was, but there's one where it's just like that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I love Satanic Rites, so I really do. And I, I I can listen to those film soundtracks over and over again. I, I don't know. I just love them. <laughs> uh, last year over on my blog over at DerekMCook.com, I have a, a regular thing, a semi-regular thing I do on Thursday called the Thursday 13, where I talk about 13 this, 13 that, whatever. And in January of last year, I did a, a post on my favorite 13 sequels, and I included Satanic Rites of Dracula in that. So, <laughs> <laughs> We did get uh, one voicemail this week from Rod from the Nashi cast. And before we play it, I wanted to say something quickly about our voicemail. It cuts off at three minutes, so there is a kind of an abrupt cut. Um, that's part of because we're using Google Voice for our voicemail line, and it does have a three-minute limit. But here's uh, Rod from the Nashi Cast. Hello, guys. This is Rod of the Nashi Cast. I should have called this uh, in a while back. I, I listened to the podcast. Uh, well, I've listened to it twice now, actually, and I made notes a long time ago, and I just stumbled across the notes and realized I needed to call you guys. First of all, I do find it amusing that you're mentioning Peter Cushing in every episode, regardless of his appearance in the film that you're discussing. Kind of funny, but I think if you're going to do that, you're going to need to work in the occasional mention of Christopher Lee as well, just to even things out. And uh, although uh, the occasional mention of Michael Ripper is a good idea as well, I wouldn't mind seeing just the mention of Patrick Troughton. I mean, yeah, I mean, he wasn't in that many Hammer films, but he was in Scars of Dracula, and he's one of the best things in it. But, uh, hey, 
You mentioned the car, the Karnstein films. Really can't wait for you guys to dive into those films. That's going to be interesting. As a matter of fact, I think the copious amounts of nudity that uh, roll around with great joy in those films. Um, Twins of Evil, when you get to Twins of Evil, just remember, it's Twins of Evil, quadruplets of joy. Yes, I think you're going to enjoy those guys. Um, about Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. One of my personal favorite Hammer films, I absolutely love it. But at the same time, I do understand why some people who come to it cold without a, uh, an appreciation of it from their younger years might have trouble with it. It does have some, let's just say, longueurs, where there are certain areas, in other words, there are certain areas of the film that uh, you kind of wish were a little bit peppier or there was more to them. I personally, my main wish about the film is that I do wish that uh, the sword play sequences were a bit more interesting. I think that some of the neat uh, ways of framing things and shooting things are great, but they're not particularly exciting a lot of the time. Um, that's w- that's one thing where I felt this this film that is ostensibly a, a swashbuckler really should have excelled, and it, and it didn't really, and that's that's a bit of a shame. I've never really had too much trouble with the lead actor, but I can see how having someone else in that role might have made that film pop a bit more, and maybe have made it a much more popular film, especially at the time. But uh, it is one of my favorite Hammer films. Uh, I am a little sad that it didn't change anyone's life with this particular viewing. I'm not pointing any fingers. You know who you were. But uh, I don't know if it'd be in my top five, but uh, maybe it is in my top five. Is it in my top? No, it's not. Maybe top ten. Top ten. It'd be in my top ten. Guys, you got you're doing a great job with uh, the hammer discussion. Please keep it up, even if just one a month. Uh, this is a project well worth your time and our. Time. You, you said that about the three minute cutoff, but I thought maybe that was intentional because he ends on such a nice note. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we do mention Cushing a lot or Cushing a lot. I, I can't, like I said, I'm on Team Cushing, man. I can't help it. <laughs> He's a badass. How can you help it? Help, yeah. Help yourself. I know, man. <laughs> I mean, he's Van Helsing. He's Tarkin. He's Sherlock Holmes. He's everything, brother. He's so, awesome. He is. He is. Uh, but Michael Ripper's pretty cool, too. I, I guess when I, when I think about Christopher Lee, as much as I love him in the Hammer films, I, it's one of those situations where I have a hard time divorcing Christopher Lee, the actor, versus all the interviews that I've read with him or all the, well, I don't want to be known as Dracula, you know, that kind of standoffish kind of approach. So I, for me, knowing that he was standoffish with a lot of this kind of stuff and didn't want to make these movies and kind of downplayed him for years, it has hampered my enjoyment of Christopher Lee as Dracula over the years. Now, he mentions Michael Ripper. Have we watched a film with Michael Ripper in it yet for this show? <laughs> No, because <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest. I'm not sure who he is. He has done more Hammer films than Cushing or Lee. Uh, he plays the quintessential night watchman, innkeeper. You know, he's always this guy that he's a character actor, and he's always this guy kind of in the background that's helping somebody along, helping the good guys do something, helping the bad guys do something. He's never a leading man, but he's so good. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of him, and I can't wait to finally talk about him on the show when we get to a movie that has him in it. Hopefully that'll be soon. I, I hope so. To be fair, 
And to be fair, out of our six episodes, we've only had like one movie that didn't have Peter Cushing in it. But as mentioned on Facebook, the one episode that we did that didn't have a Peter Cushing film, we mentioned Cushing a lot anyway. So. Yeah, well. <laughs> I think that <laughs> will be a requirement from our show from now on that we right, have to mention. Right. We should turn it into a little game, see how long it takes for us <laughs> to talk about Peter Cushing. We should just add an extra segment where we, you know, at the start of the podcast where we have like a five-minute segment where we just get all the cushing out of our systems and then we can move on. <laughs> the the de-cushing segment? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Twins of Evil, he mentioned, and I'm sure someday we'll get to that because that one is really good. I love that movie. I do mm-hmm. too, and that's one I've actually seen, so. Yeah, Peter <laughs> Peter Cushing. Uh, <laughs> Peter Cushing is excellent in Twins. I hope oh, he wasn't so... referring as to Peter as one of those quadruplets. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> well, the quadruplets of joy is one of the greatest things I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, a couple of Playmate uh, Playboy bunnies, twin Playboy bunnies, are in that film, and it's. Uh, <sighs> Uh, I do agree a little bit with the sword playing Captain Kronos. I would have liked to have seen a lot more. And I think if the film would done now, you'd see more of that. But given the limitations of Hammer at the time, budget, time, while the sword playing there is good, uh, having more would have sold Captain Kronos the badass more. And uh, thanks for the kind words about our show. You guys should be checking out the Nashi cast as well, where he does nothing but, well, almost nothing but talk about Paul Nashi films. And Paul Nashi never did a Hammer film. Uh, he's a Spanish actor, but he certainly left his mark on werewolf cinema. I believe he did a couple of zombie films. A horror actor, done a lot over the years. So go check that out as well. Again, there will be a link in the show notes, or go look up Bloody Pit of Rod online and there's a link from his website to his podcast so you should go check that out as well yeah rod we may talk about peter cushing a lot but you sure do talk about paul nashi a lot (laughs) (laughs) or wait a minute (laughs) Uh, one other thing that i wanted to bring up before we wrap up here uh, so over on our facebook page there's been some talk about what we're going to be covering in the future. Our Facebook page is tinyurl.com slash downplacegroup. So if you're on Facebook and want to join our discussions over there, Casey and them started talking about the woman in black when they went to go see that. So you can go join that conversation over there. The poll for what we're going to cover in uh, July is over there. So go cast your vote over there. But I know some of y'all don't have Facebook. And I know some of y'all don't do the social media the way that we do. Somebody on Twitter mentioned the Robin Hood films. I've been contacted offline about the Robin Hood films. And they really want us to cover Robin Hood here on the show. Hammer, I believe, did three Robin Hood films. One starring Peter Cushing. (laughs) (laughs) As the Sheriff Nottingham. And he's incredibly good in that. That was 1960's Sword of Sherwood Forest back in 2010 on my podcast, Mule Zombie. I used to do a, an off-zombie podcast on that show as well called MOZ Presents the Munchies. And MOZ Presents the Munchies number 16 on July 18, 2010. I did talk about the Sword of Sherwood Forest. Now, it doesn't have Scott and Casey. doesn't have the kind of research that we do here on the show. But I do talk about that film. So if you're looking for a little bit of hammer robin hood talk head over to let's see tinyurl.com slash sherwood sword and will that link be in the show notes that will link will be in the show notes so you can find the show notes at 1951downplace.com yeah it's a short little episode where i talk about that movie and it looks good i I remember really liking the movie except i didn't like the robin hood in that film 
I didn't feel like the actor really earned the right in the film itself to play Robin Hood, even though he played Robin Hood on TV for years. In the film, he doesn't really seem to try. He just kind of shows up and like, I'm Robin Hood, and then moves on. Whereas all the other characters, all the other actors really do try to, I don't know, earn our appreciation. I, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but uh, go listen to the episode and, and see if you agree or disagree with me and go check that out. Now, Sword of Sherwood Forest also... I believe, has Oliver Reed in the film. And Oliver Reed is in the film that we're covering next month, Paranoiac. Paranoiac was the first Hammer film to be released on Blu-ray. It's the first time Hammer film had come out on Blu-ray. It was released, I believe, as a region-free Blu-ray back in 2010. I have it here. I have not watched the Blu-ray yet. I've been sitting on it. I will be watching it for next month's episode. So I'm looking forward to that. It's not a gothic film. It's a contemporary film at the time, I believe. And there's no Peter Cushing, but I'm sure we'll find a way to bring him up. <laughs> uh, also, we have a Twitter page over at uh, 1951 Down Place. You can find us online on Twitter. And again, we mentioned the website. And if you want to send us feedback like Dr. Green. Brad or Rod, how do they do that? Well, they can email us at podcast at 1951downplace.com or give us a call at area code 765-203-1951. So we will talk to you guys again in 31 days when we come back here to talk about Paranoiac and anything else you guys have written or called in about. Thanks for listening. We appreciate all the support and the downloads and the, and the quadruples of joy. I'm going to go vote for Twins of Evil, man. <laughs> You're not going to vote for Four-Sided Triangle anymore? No, I want Twins of Evil now. <laughs> uh, he's going to vote for Four-Sided Twins. Four-Sided Twins. <laughs> <laughs>what is number one right now i think it's still dracula prince of darkness it is by one over um x the unknown Hmm. and prince dracula prince of darkness is that the one that's getting the big blu-ray push right now i think so yeah uh, it has 10 votes x the unknown has nine votes vampire circus has nine votes twins of evil has two rasputin the mad monk has one and hell is a city has one Come on, guys. Hell is the City. It's a great movie. It's a film noir. Let's do something different. Have you voted, uh, Casey? Uh, yes. I voted for X the Unknown, I think. I have not voted. So. I'm saving my vote in case something comes up we don't want to do, and I can vote something else in place. <laughs> <laughs> Yoink.